Hello, everyone, and welcome to American Student Radio on WIUX LP Bloomington. I'm your host, Casey Ross. This week's episode is about fear, and to be honest, I'm really scared right now (laughs) about hosting. But, you know, everybody's afraid of something, whether that be snakes or heights or clowns. My biggest fear is roller coasters. And I'm not talking about, oh my goodness, I'm so scared. I'm talking about debilitating, frozen, you can't see, you can't hear, fear. It all started when I was in third grade and my family took a trip to Disney World. My mom hyped it up. She was like, you know, this is the most magical place on earth. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people think that, but I absolutely hated every second of it. It got so bad that my family got in line for the Tower of Terror at MGM Studios and I fainted. Yep, I saw black, hit the floor, and the next thing I remember is my mom carrying me out of the line. And to this day, I still absolutely refuse to step foot on a roller coaster. I'm Casey Ross, and you're listening to American Student Radio. From Blue... From... Uh, okay, live? live? What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. It's easy to see how fear affects us as individuals, but what happens when fear takes over an entire community? In this next segment, our producers Eli Cantrell and Hayden Sims tackle this very topic. Twist and turn and hands. Hey Eli, uh, what's with the dancing? Oh, I'm just uh, trying to tap into the spirit of Frau Trophia. Who's Frau Trophia? Oh, uh, Frau Trophia, the first victim of the dancing plague of 1518. A dancing plague? Yeah, uh, here, how about this? Close your eyes. Okay. Are they closed? Yep. Okay, picture this. The year is 1518. You're in the city of Strasbourg in northern France, and it's in the middle of July. Ooh, hot! You're walking down through the town center, and you notice a woman dancing the night away. Okay, I'm liking this picture so far. Each day you pass by, more and more dancers have joined her, and by the end of the week, more than 400 people are dancing in the streets of Strasbourg. Wait, 400 people in the streets of Strasbourg? Well, there had to have been something going on, a festival or something. Well, that's the thing. According to the historical records at the time, these people didn't want to dance. They somehow felt compelled to dance. They danced nonstop for days on end, and dozens of them ended up dying from heart attacks and exhaustion. One account says that during one period, this so-called plague killed 15 people per day. 15 people per day just from dancing. And, rather interestingly, this event was not isolated just in Strasbourg. In the next couple of centuries after this, there were several more accounts of dancing mania throughout Europe. Well, hang on now. Now, people don't just start randomly dancing. There had to be some sort of cause to this. Um, The physicians at the time thought it was caused by some sort of blood disease, and their prescription for a cure was 
to dance it out. They built stages and hired musicians to encourage more of these dancers. Wait, wait, wait. So let me, let me get this straight. So dozens of people are dying from this dancing plague, and their solution was to encourage more dancing. Yeah, I know. It doesn't really make that much sense. Uh, eventually, modern researchers theorized that this could have been caused by um, this hallucinogenic fungus called ergot that infected the food supply. You know, it's it's interesting that you mention ergot because that's the same fungus that many modern historians have associated with causing the great fear. It was the beginning of the French Revolution, and there were a lot of food shortages and the tensions between the the monarchy and the royalty and the peasants was, was starting to heighten. And many of the peasants became sort of delirious and to the point of actually believing that the nobles were purposely trying to starve them. And it's interesting that you mention that because this is an example of what you might call mass hysteria. So how does mass hysteria tie into fear? So there's this proposed theory uh, for what causes mass hysteria, like the dancing plague or the great fear, uh, and it's called psychogenic illness. Psychogenic illness. So basically, psychogenic illness is this rapid spread of symptoms amongst a cohesive group of people, often caused by extreme excitement or extreme stress, and it has no real organic cause. So it's possible that the people of Strasbourg were so stressed or excited that they developed these delusions of a dancing plague? Right, and that's the exact theory presented by historian John Waller, who uh, is sort of an expert on this dancing plague. So you have to think about it in this historical context. In 1518, the bubonic plague was still affecting some areas of Europe. The people of France were suffering from famines caused by harsh winters and dry summers. These people had plenty to be stressed about. So it's not impossible to imagine that a few of them were just pushed over the edge. Well, that's certainly reasonable. But why dancing? I mean, I feel like most examples of mass psychogenic illness just involve convulsions, stomach aches, headaches, stuff like that. And that's a good question. So Strasbourg, France was part of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. And in that particular region of the Holy Roman Empire, it was common to celebrate a saint named St. Vitus by dancing. And St. Vitus, rather appropriately, is the patron saint of dancing. People who fell victim to random convulsions or dancing mania, as they called it, uh, were often said to be afflicted with so-called St. Vitus's dance, a curse placed by St. Vitus himself. Okay. So, it's easy to see how the people of Strasbourg would have known about St. Vitus, would have thought that they were being cursed after years of plague and famine. And it would just take one little seed, in this case, in the mind of Frau Trophia, to convince you that you have this dancing plague. Then fear takes over, and before you know it, the whole town is convinced they're afflicted. That's right, and that's really the danger of mass hysteria. It's difficult to pinpoint the cause... And once it takes hold, it spreads like wildfire. It really makes you think about the potential of utilizing mass hysteria as a form of psychological warfare. It's certainly a frightening possibility. Uh, right after the 9-11 anthrax attacks, within a two-week time span, there were over 2,300 false anthrax alarms in the United States. People were consistently frightened of just the 
small possibility of similar terrorist attacks. And just earlier this month, um, at LAX, there was a false alarm of a bomb threat. And if you watch the videos, people are running, hectically running for their lives through the airport, despite no existence at all of an actual danger. Based on that, this possibility really allows the enemy to attack without really having to do anything. And it's really sort of the tactic of the supervillain, if you think about it. So, in the video game Batman Arkham Asylum, the villain Scarecrow uses a hallucinogenic drug that causes Batman to have nightmarish delusions. And by doing that, he is sometimes able to defeat Batman, not with power or strength, but with fear. And at one point... While Batman is hallucinating his worst nightmares, Scarecrow asks, Is your mind playing tricks on you, or am I? Is your your mind mind playing tricks on you, or am I? The music from this segment is provided by Kevin McLeod. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Eli Cantrell. And I'm Hayden Sims. Beyond mass hysteria is background fear, the kind that operates at a low hum throughout much of society. One of the most common is arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. In this next piece, ASR producer Emily Miles asks students why they can't handle this eight-legged creature. Even the itsy-bitsy spider is a source of fear. Think of little Miss Muffet who sat on a tuffet eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider who sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. But why? I know, they've just got, they've got so many legs and so many eyes, and I think that's part of it. I think the other part is when they make those little webs, they can, like, go wherever they want. He could just be sleeping, and the spider just kind of appears. I had one spider um, dangling from my shower head, like, last week. Like, I turned on the water, and the spider kind of just, like, dropped down on his little thread from the shower head. That was pretty scary. So I think just the fact that they can, like, kind of, like, creep wherever they want with all their extra limbs. Like, what are they doing with all those? I don't know. That's IU sophomore Sarah Gardner, and she's in good company. Hi, my name is Alicia Patterson. I'm a freshman. My name is Claire. I'm a sophomore, a French major. I'm Ganza. I'm a sophomore. My name is Jordan, and I'm a freshman. I'm Olivia Little. Um, I'm a sophomore at IU. Their skin crawls at the thought of those vaguely hairy arachnids, ranging in size from hundredths of an inch to nearly a foot, composing webs, darting across rooms, and into the collective human psyche. I don't know, I just think it's eerie, but I I also think that it has to do, like, we incorporate spiders uh, into, like, Halloween traditions, so I think, like, uh, that association from a young age would affect, like, the way in which people perceive them. Uh, They're really quick and unexpected and kind of twitchy. At home, I have a bunch of really big ones, and they run after you, I guess. I don't like the way they look. They look really unappealing to me, and if I'm, like, really close to one, I'm afraid it's going to, like run towards me and get all over my body. (laughs) Maybe the eight legs really freak me out and I don't like how they can be like really small but also really big. When like obviously when you see a big spider you're like oh my gosh that freaks me out but also the little ones because they can just like get in any cracker like you won't even know that they're there because you can't see them so that's what freaks me out. I literally found a spider in my room the other day and we couldn't kill it like we tried to smash it like three times and it would not die and so That's like my biggest fear is that I'm going to think that something's dead and it's not going to be dead. (laughs) 
I feel like I'm gonna like either miss or they're just gonna like disperse everywhere. I'm gonna see more than one and it's just gonna be all bad. <laughs> um, I was actually in Florida and they have these huge spiders that carry babies on their back and my mom killed one and like their babies just like dispersed everywhere. <laughs> But in the end, uh, I just I don't know. I think everybody hypes it up. They're not that. They're most spiders are real small, so so everybody just it's in their head, uh, just because of what they see on the TV or something, or like maybe they had a bad experience when they were little. My name is Osadolor Idahosa. I'm a sophomore, psychology major. Uh, my name is Joseph, and I am a transfer junior. I understand that you know they're gross, but it's only on the outside, I guess. So they just look very atypical from what we currently. Uh, indulge ourselves with, you know, they have all these legs, all these eyes, it kind of, people give them like these uh, almost surreal or fictitious types of horror stories that they like to connotate them to. It's a little irrational. In the end, we tend to fear those eight-legged and two-legged creatures, those concrete and nebulous factors that we've been told might be dangerous. While many spiders are as harmless as butterflies, Somehow, we've coded one to breed fear and the other comfort. Perhaps it's all a matter of deception, in which spiders have become a symbol of what could go wrong, a focus of negative energy. Just think of that tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. All percussive sounds were provided by Chris Turlack. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Miles. So let's talk irrational fears. I'm sitting here in the studio with ASR producer Sheila Ragavadrin and executive producer Sophia Salaby. To start, I have an irrational fear of Jack Nicholson. Wait a second. (laughs) I read that on the script last night. I was like, what does she mean by that? So I saw The Shining for the first time and... I don't know. I think it's because he's such a great actor. Like, he's really, really terrifying. And so I watched the movie The Shining, and I was like, man, you're doing a great job. This is terrifying. I don't want to see you. But I also, have you seen those pictures of, like, Jack Nicholson photobombing Jennifer Lawrence and, like, other celebrities? Oh, no. That's Yeah, he's creepy. just as scary. He's <laughs> just as terrifying. And so if that were to happen to me, like, on the street, I would probably either run away like, or die. Can like, you... Can you put us through like this scenario where where you are walking down the street and Jack Nicholson like like what is happening? What, what are you doing? Like? What are you doing? What is he doing? Oh my gosh! So he might just walk up and if he gives me oh my gosh if he were to give me that smile from The Shining, I literally don't. I probably would faint like I did when I was at the Tower of Terror. Like I, I just have no idea. I would just freeze and probably turn and run. Oh, That's crazy. Yeah. Man. That's crazy. That's specific. <laughs> right? I have like an irrational fear fear of burglars. It's been a thing since I was really little. Like I, I was just terrified of, um, of like my basement because I thought that I don't know. I was just terrified, and so I would run up the stairs, and I hated going down there. And it's just like this thing that's kind of stuck with me. I still like don't like going into my basement that much, but you know, you grow up. (laughs) Well, you know, in scary movies, all the bad stuff always happens in the basement. Right? Yeah, and like being home alone was like. (laughs) No, I hear like one creak, and I'm like. Take nope. me now, I'm dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I have to have the TV on and the lights on. And, well, yeah. I have a list of rational fears. Because, I don't know, my anxieties take hold. And, like, most of them have to do with dying. Like, I like it's just so morbid. I don't think about it that much. But, 
You know, like, okay, I'll read you some of them because I took them for my journal. I wrote them on here because I didn't want to bring my journal to the studio because it has secret stuff in it. But it's like <laughs> just me talking shit about everybody. Uh, but, Love you too, Sophia. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, like, okay, here's one. Walking on the sidewalk, falling into the street, and then being run over. Like, like when isn't that scary? I'm, like, walking on the sidewalk. I fall in the street. <laughs> I trip. I fall in the street. And then I'm run over by a car, and then I'm dead. Like, uh, uh, like when would this happen to you? Like, where are you? Like, here on campus. Okay. Like, I'm walking on the sidewalk. <laughs> like, I think about it. Like, when I'm walking, I'm like, Sophie, you can't fall. And one time I did fall in the street. And I think I know where it came from. Because one time I was, uh, like, in my hometown, I was walking around. And I, um, and I like, decided to run across the street. Because we needed to cross the street, but I decided to run. But I was like... I was, like, kind of close to getting hit by a car. So maybe it comes from that. Maybe it comes from that. I don't know. Oh, man. Do you want me to go to another one? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So um, people in mascot costumes? Furries. No, not furries. No, not furries. Well, <laughs> like, 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 like. Um, Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse, oh. yeah. Yeah. Oh. Like, because uh, when I was in, I have, like, stories to go with mostly. So maybe they're fine. Maybe they're rational. Maybe they all come yeah. from something. Yeah. <laughs> this is a therapy session. <laughs> Like, when I was in uh, second grade, I won this book, like, there was, like, a, this book reading contest, and you could get prizes, and one of the prizes was the tickets to the Nashville Sounds, which was a minor league baseball team in Nashville. So I went, and we snuck in food, um, and they were in my the bag that I had, and I was kind of like, whew, I'm breaking the law, like, I got the <laughs> Subway sandwiches in my bag. And then all of a sudden, I feel these furry arms come behind <gasps> me, and, okay, and, like, thinking back to it, I thought, I think what was going through my mind was like, this is a police officer. I'm about to be taken to jail forever, forever for bringing subway in. Oh my gosh. Um, but it actually was T-Rack, the, uh, raccoon (laughs) or the, the raccoon mascot of Tennessee Titans. (laughs) And I I started crying and he just walked away. And like, I think that's where that comes from. Like, but like I went to Disney world when I was in fifth grade and I was like, you guys can go get autographs. I'm just going to hang out outside and just enjoy enjoy what's going on. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I have this family picture from when I was little, um, and my sister and I met, like, Barney, like this guy dressed up as Barney, and my sister is, like, hugging him and is so happy. My mom's holding me, and I'm just screaming. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right, so, so now we're going to take a quick break, but when mm-hmm. we come back, we'll hear stories about fear-mongering, FOMO, and much more. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast from WIUX 99.1 FM every Sunday at noon. In this episode, you've heard a bunch of stories about fear, everything from spiders to FOMO. So we asked our producers what they're afraid of. I have two biggest fears. My first biggest fear is spiders. Can't stand spiders. My second one is being uh, buried alive. That just really freaks me out. I think it's this weird combination of like claustrophobia and like being kidnapped and just like, it freaks me out. I'd probably have to say my biggest fear is being alone. Most importantly, dying. So in a variety of ways, like walking on the sidewalk, tripping, falling in the street, getting run over, um, having a heart attack in my sleep, but my door's locked and nobody can open the door to get me in. So I'm just stuck in there dead. Um, I'm trying to think of another one. <laughs> Dying. The only thing I'm afraid of physically is spiders. It's the only thing. But then, like, 
in more of a metaphysical world, I'm afraid of being alone. Okay, so I am afraid of open waters, so like uh, you'd never catch me on like a boat in the middle of the ocean or anything like that, and so I think it's connected to a fear of drowning. I am really, really afraid of heights. Like it's really bad. Furries. <laughs> what have you actually put furries on here? What are you afraid of? Furries. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to American Student Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ross. Social media is a great place to share moments and connect with friends, but at times it can also be a place for fear and anxiety. ASR producer Angelo Bautista brings us a story about the fear of missing out. It's a fear we've all experienced. It gets under our skin when we're alone at night, and it creeps up on us when we're lying in bed, scrolling through Facebook and checking Snapchat. It's FOMO. Fear of missing out. Now, if you haven't heard of FOMO yet, then dude, you are totally missing out. FOMO describes the uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that other people are having these amazing experiences while you are not. And this is usually characterized by a desire to be constantly checking in on social media to see what others are doing. I will admit that I suffer from chronic FOMO, and it can get pretty bad. I would be lying if I said that FOMO hasn't affected my relationships. And I'm not the only one feeling the FOMO. Could you describe for me the last time you experienced FOMO? Um, There was a party last weekend, and I didn't go, but I should have gone. Like, everyone kept, like, posting it on Snapchat and everything, and it was frustrating because I didn't go. (laughs) The last time I experienced FOMO had to have been when I was stuck at work, and my roommates got to go out and have fun at the bars. I almost as a role stay off of social media a lot. I have it, but I don't like to spend a lot of time on it. So I feel like it's distracting and doesn't allow you to be present. And there's a lot of stress, unnecessary stress involved with social media. I definitely agree. I think social media can be a great source of stress and anxiety, especially because of FOMO. But it doesn't have to be. I decided to sit down with someone to help me get to the bottom of this FOMO business. My name is Ted Jamison Koenig, and I am a PhD candidate at the Media School at Indiana University, and I teach S315 this semester, which is a media processes and effects class. So what does FOMO say about our relationship to social media? I think that there are two ways that you can look at FOMO. Uh, The first of which being FOMO itself, so the actual fear of missing out on something that's happening somewhere else. You see on social media somebody else is having a party and they didn't invite you or you couldn't go for some reason. And then you feel bad. It's It's that negative feeling that you get because you know something's happening and you weren't a part of it. I think on the other side, people post things on social media for exactly sort of the opposite reason, almost to create FOMO in other people. Yeah, it really seems like FOMO tends to feed into itself. Like, 
the cure for FOMO is to go online, feel sad about yourself, and then participate in it and just add to the cycle of FOMO. So who is to blame for FOMO? Is it, is it us or is it uh, the people that create social software? I think FOMO has been around a lot longer than social media has. I think even in non-mediated contexts, FOMO still certainly exists. It's not that social media has created FOMO. It's more that social media makes it a lot easier to experience and then perhaps alleviate in some way your feelings of fearing missing out on something. So I, I like to think that we know on some level that social media isn't really representational of life. But a lot of, a lot of the fears and anxieties that come with it are based on that. What, what do you think accounts for that, that dissonance? Well, studies show have shown that people use social media in order to present their best selves, and that helps their own self-esteem and actually has pretty good psychological benefits. But at the same time, you are presenting something that's not necessarily your entire self, the good and the bad. So I think actually having a discrepancy in some ways is good because it can help you point out all of the great things about your life. But then on the other hand, if you have a big fear of missing out and you don't post a lot, you may find that looking around might hurt your self-esteem in some way. There's another term that's been going around, JOMO, the joy of missing out. Have you heard of it? I have not. It seems to be like a counter term for FOMO. What needs to change to tip those scales towards JOMO? Or does a change even need to happen? I'm not sure that media's relationship with FOMO and JOMO even are necessarily a a catalyst for all of these issues. I think what it's more bringing out is that we've always had FOMO and we've always had some sort of reactance-based response to it. But what I think social media does specifically is it brings it out into a sphere where everybody in our network gets to see either what we're doing or what we're not doing and happy we're not doing. So I'm not sure that there's anything to be fixed necessarily. I think that it's more of a question of trying to manage it because I think it's always going to be there. Well, there you have it. FOMO is here to stay which kind of sucks. But Ted is absolutely right. Social media isn't going away anytime soon, and there is always going to be a never-ending supply of missed opportunities in your Facebook feed. There's only one you, and you can't do it all. So how do we manage our FOMO? From my own personal journey to end my fears of missing out, I can tell you this. The lives of other people, especially on social media, are never good measuring sticks for your own happiness and self-fulfillment. If you find yourself feeling the FOMO, pay it no mind. Focus on the things that make you happy, not the things that give you envy. And think of it this way. You aren't missing out on an awesome party. They're missing out on an awesome night at home watching Parks and Rec with your cat under a warm fleece blanket. Now that sounds pretty damn good to me. The music for this piece was created by Poddington Bear with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial International License. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Angela Bautista. Fear is not just something that's in our personal lives. It's also a powerful political tool. 
Perhaps no one knew this better than Senator Joseph McCarthy, who used it to launch a witch hunt of alleged communists in the 1950s. ASI reporter Tristan Fitzpatrick examines the so-called Red Scare and the McCarthy's and McCarthy's short career in the U.S. Senate. Something bad is happening, and we can't be the stupid what ones. What he has laid out is the most dangerous reckless approach to being president than I think we've ever seen. During our current election, fear is a big topic. Candidates have used a fear of immigrants, fear of terrorism, and fears of the unknown to attract voters to their campaigns. When exactly did fear begin playing such a big role in our politics? Some of it can be traced to one man, Senator Joseph McCarthy. I think we've got a much more serious situation now on communist infiltration of the CIA. Me a former attorney from Wisconsin, McCarthy was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1946. During his first term, he served in a period of great anxiety for America. The Cold War between the U.S. and Russia was just beginning. America would go to war in Korea in 1950. That same year, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, two American citizens, would be arrested for leaking information to the Soviet Union about the atomic bomb. This created a perfect storm for McCarthy to enter the national stage with a proclamation that communists were hijacking the American government. Even if there only one communist in the State Department, that would still be one communist too many. In a speech given in February 1950, McCarthy claimed that 205 communists had infiltrated the State Department. When he later testified to the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, he couldn't identify a single communist that was in the government. But the damage was already done. McCarthy's accusations made him a populist figure who was, supposedly, leading the way for America against the Soviet Union. Following his re-election in 1952, he became the chair for the Committee on Government Operations of the Senate. He launched even more false accusations against officials from this position. The information be given once we know of anyone who might be performing any work for the Communist Party. In 1954, things eventually came to a head after McCarthy accused the U.S. Army of hiding communists. In a 36-day hearing that was broadcast on television, McCarthy's relentless interrogative tactics were seen across the nation, and soon after, public support for his positions waned. Later that same year, the Senate voted to condemn him for violating conduct contrary to Senate positions. McCarthy then died before the end of his second term of alcoholism. Fear has always been a powerful tool used by politicians. Thanks to the rise and fall of McCarthy, however, politicians must be careful, elicit a little fear, and the public might vote for them and support their positions. Elicit too much fear falsely, however, and the public might turn against them. Thanks goes to Encyclopedia Britannica Online for the information in this story. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick. For our last piece of the day, ASR producer Noni Ford gives us her perception of the television show Buffy the Vampire Slayer and her review of what she calls the scariest episodes of the series. Hi, this is Noni for ASR, and today I'm going to be discussing some of the scariest episodes of Josh Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, I want to start off by saying that the series Buffy isn't really supposed to be scary, um... And the first season's actually pretty hokey, so if you decide to go back or you decide to watch it for the first time, be aware that you will not be scared for any of the episodes of the first season 
at all just because it was very very campy um in a funny way but it's more funny than scary i think but that being said uh there are some legitimately scary episodes and so i want to review the top three scariest so brief background about buffy and how i got into it um basically my sister and i used to watch it when it was randomly in reruns um and we got really into it and then i kind of just stopped watching it and then somewhere in my late teens i decided to start watching it again and like fell in love season two is my favorite season of all time um but i fell in love with it just because it was so good um and so um i've watched i think most of the episodes i don't know if i can say i've watched all of them because there are a lot of seasons you guys but um almost all of them and first off we have helpless which is season three episode eight so in this episode buffy is trapped in a building with a deranged serial killer turned vampire and for the time being she has lost her powers um so she's undergoing a test by the watchers council but the test has gone out of control and basically the vampires overpowered the people who were in charge of administering the test and killed one of them made the other one a vampire um so this episode is especially scary because anything having to do with enclosed spaces and someone silently stalking you kind of freaks me out um but also because this is an episode where giles is kind of turning against buffy so basically in this episode at some point he puts her in a trance and then he um like puts muscle relaxant and stuff like that into her arms she's gonna have her usual um slayer um muscles and like her usual like slayer strength and stuff like that um because for those who don't know about vampire slayer one thing that makes her kind of amazing is that because she is the slayer of this generation um she's like endowed with these like great abilities to um basically like uh fight anybody and be able to kill them successfully um even though she's like um a fairly small or slightly small teenage girl um but yeah so basically she's she doesn't have these powers this episode um and basically this is an episode where it's her 18th birthday for those of us who love buffy we know that every single birthday episode's a horrible <laughs> it's a good episode but something horrible happens to her um that's really upsetting usually and really sad um and so um this is her 18th birthday so it kind of just falls in that tradition um but one thing that kind of makes it distinct is that in all previous episodes where it's been a birthday yes things have been terrible and stuff has happened to her but at least you know her family slash friends are always kind of there trying to provide support and to help her out whatever the circumstance is but in this episode giles is actually somebody that causes this to happen so it's kind of scary because giles is basically first of all he's the coolest but second of all he's kind of like a father figure i think to her almost more than a father though he's like kind of a friend but also a confidant um so when he kind of turns against her even though he thinks it's in the best interest of the watchers council it's kind of scary because you've never really seen giles snap like that like he's always been it's always been his priority to protect buffy um it's never hasn't been that so to see that is really really scary but also just the fact that it's like this this vampire that's almost even more demonic than normal vampires because even in his previous life as a human he was a serial killer and actually like mentally insane and so like 
he's slowly stalking Buffy through this um, home um, the whole time she's trying to find her mom the whole time she's never powers so it's kind of like the first time that we really see her um, other than I guess the Halloween episode it's into it's the first time we see her like actually battle someone without having any of her super strength without having any of her um, abilities so it's kind of like her as a normal person which is always pretty pretty scary to see um, but also in general just serial killer stalking you in houses terrifying um <laughs> so um the second one i picked number two the body episode 16 season four so this is the saddest and also the scariest episode um some people actually call it the best episode of the show um by far um i would actually have to agree with that assessment so in this episode um buffy comes home to find her mother has um died just while sitting on the couch um while Buffy goes away um so this episode's kind of everybody reacting to that death um and it's especially scary episode because there there's a lot of violence um in the series because she's constantly killing beasts and vampires and the vampires and beasts are constantly killing innocent people and high school students um like a lot of high school students actually like it's kind of a miracle anybody graduates from Sunnydale High School, but, um, (laughs) so basically, um, you see a lot of people dying every single episode, and it's always really, really sad, obviously, and stuff like that, at the same time, you don't really ever get to know these people, they're just kind of random deaths, so you, you don't get as connected to them, but, um, Joyce, um, Joyce Summers, Buffy's mom, is basically in almost, like, every single episode or if not in the episode mentioned at least once um so you actually get to know her a lot and you know when Buffy reveals that she's a slayer um it's tough for her mother but they eventually kind of bond again and there's a lot of um sympathy that she has towards Buffy and her quest to kind of rid the world of all this evil um so you get to know this character and so when she actually dies um but also dies in like she's in a lot of bad situations all throughout basically every season like she's always kidnapped or she um is like somehow um put into a trance or something of that nature so like there's so many different times when she's near death or oh my god she may die this time but like this is when she actually dies and it's not because you know a vampire killed her or um you know a creature tripped apart something like that it's because you know she was just um middle-aged person that i think they said had a brain aneurysm in the show i think had a brain aneurysm and she died and so it's actually really simple it's not anything that's fantastical like every other part of the show and so it's actually a lot more upsetting because it's kind of dealing with just the fact that you know death does not be this big thing in buffy um buffy's life it's not just like oh man kill or be killed every single episode you see sometimes how it wears on her but this is the first episode where i feel like you actually feel every character really deeply affected by this death because joyce has touched so many people and she's always been there and it's like the first death in some ways that's um, i don't want to say real but it's like the first death that doesn't that isn't reversed so angel dies we all know that but he, he comes back but like joyce never comes back like when she dies it's actually the close of that chapter and that's really upsetting and really sad and 
but it's also i think kind of healthy to show people like hey like you know you see all these crazy weird deaths with like stakes and stuff and like i don't know like people getting impaled but like in real life death can also be this much quieter much more silent and much more scary reality that people have to deal with um and it was really interesting seeing this now seeing buffy um and all the other people who are usually so strong kind of break down under all this pressure of losing people all over the years but also especially of losing this mother figure um so that's a big component number one scariest episode of buffy ever um hush episode 10 season 4 the majority of this episode is actually silent because these demons called the gentlemen uh put a spell over the town so that um they can move through sunnydale and um carve out the hearts of victims and so no one can hear the screams of the victims and no one can get together and find to try to find a way to you know um take these men down because people rely so much on their speech and with this episode this speech is gone and stuff like that so they have to find something else to rely on uh, but also the episode is crazy scary because you don't really realize how scary like of course like agonized screams are gonna make you jump but like seeing what's happening like seeing someone's heart get carved out and then seeing the scream but not hearing it is so much creepier than the other way around um let me tell you but also these um the gentlemen these very very tall men who are dressed in these um like uh suits and they have these like very very huge grins that are terrifying and they're like very pale um bald men um and that along with the silence just makes the entire episode super scary um but also i want to kind of talk about the background of it so um basically josh whedon said the reason that he kind of made this um episode was that he felt like things were getting a little bit too stale on buffy like he was relying way too much on like writing and stuff like that because that's kind of what he's known for like the quick-witted kind of like fast um writing of buffy if all these characters were so defined and you know they were also in their um fourth season so he'd been writing these characters for a long time so he wanted to change things up a little bit and so i decided to write hush by saying like oh you know comedy especially comedy you know with words is such a crutch for me so i'm going to do something without words to see if i can kind of test myself and go over the limits of what i think is actually possible which is really cool um but also i guess he says that the idea of the gentleman, the way that they are kind of presented, um, slash dressed, is actually based off of a dream that he had as a child that, like, terrified him, and I honestly totally understand why, like, if you guys haven't seen the episode, just watch the episode if you're up for it, because it is terrifying, and I don't, I can't even imagine a child having the imagination to think of something, like, that scary, but, um, it, it happened, I guess, to Josh Whedon, um, so... So basically, Josh Whedon's an amazing writer. Um, what he does is he makes these amazing shows that have great concepts, um, and he just puts these characters that are so lovable. I think that's the thing that connects all of them, to be honest. Um, I mean, he's done um, Dollhouse, um, Firefly, um, The Avengers. Um, he also did Much Ado About Nothing, actually, which is quasi recently um and a lot of really awesome things also he like guest starred in veronica mars 
ugh, random tidbit. Um, but yeah, so check him out. But basically, um, this show I think was one of his best shows. Um, because I think that he took something that could have really been very like bad and kitschy, like the first season especially. Um, and he, you have to kind of stick with it, but like you eventually learn this is like a really good show. Um, and I think that honestly, like there are so many aspects of this show and there's so many ways characters change and evolve that you kind of like learn with them and i honestly feel like it maybe it's a little bit weird but i think that watching buffy is a little bit of a learning experience in some ways because it's like these people go through so much so many circumstances and events in their lives but like each one's a teachable moment that is hard a lot of the time but it's something that's really essential to them growing up um and I think that's why people find them so relatable about it, even today. So I hope this inspires you to rewatch Buffy, or watch Buffy for the first time. Either decision is totally good. Um, uh, for America's Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Noni. So before we wrap up today, we're just going to take a second and ask ourselves, has fear ever stopped you from doing something? It almost stopped me from coming in today. <laughs> I've been a part of American State Radio for a while, and I've never hosted, just because just the thought of messing up on air is just terrifying to me. I don't know. It's kind of like stage fright, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. I remember I, like, I hosted the first ASR show, which was a long time ago, and like I remember I was like like so nervous uh so i can see how that was but i remember like we had host applications this semester where you were like i'm so scared of hosting and i'm like it's not a big deal it's it's so chill yeah so chill but i'm glad you made the decision to come here today me too yeah. overcome that yeah. fear <laughs> <laughs> what about you guys has fear ever stopped you from doing anything i feel like it's definitely made me hesitate Mm-hmm. In, for a lot of different things like even just things as simple as going up to someone and saying hi or like you know like making the first initiation um that can be scary I don't know I like to try to push myself to do it because I'll, I'm I'm usually like oh my god this is so scary this is so scary I have to do it though and I just try to push myself to do it yeah like um from yeah I am generally like I'm just indecisive and it's kind of like fear of missing out but also like fear of making oh, the yeah. wrong decision yeah. so it's like I end up not making a decision and, like, sometimes I regret that because I'm, like, oh, something could have been really cool. And it's, like, I kind of, like, I have stage fright. But then, like, once I do it, it, like, turns out fine for the most part. Like, I, I'm fine. And, like, I'm, like, not glad that I did that. But I'm, like, oh, I'm okay. And everybody's, like, you did okay. I'm, like, ah, oh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, sometimes fear can be a good thing. Like, if you're afraid of jumping off a bridge and you don't do Probably it Probably keep that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I I mean... Yeah, I think there's a stigma that, like, fear is bad. Mm -hmm. And it's not always bad. Yeah. It's healthy. It's our survival instinct. Are you fight or flight or (laughs) faint or... There's a fourth one now. Fight, flight, faint. Faint or freeze. Oh. So, I don't know. I'm more of a freeze kind of gal. Yeah. Apparently, I'm a faint kind of gal. Yeah. Well, so that's all we have for today. Thanks for joining me in the first installment in a series of spooky episodes this month. Make sure to tune in next Sunday at noon, where Catherine De La Rosa will be bringing back our interview with David Crabb, author of Bad Kid. I'm Casey Ross, and you've been listening to American Student Radio.
Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 